And as you're taking your seats, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up uh, to the book of Ephesians. Well, everybody knows deep down that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We see this on a daily basis, don't we? Our car breaks down again. Our body is breaking down even more. Our kids broke down this morning on the way to church. Just when you think everything is going well, something else hits, and we're struck again by the reality that the world that we live in is truly broken. You can flip on the news and and we see what's happening all around the world today. There are hurricanes and floods and earthquakes and wars and political unrest and turmoil. There's racial turmoil. There's terrorism. But we don't have to look to the news to see that the world is broken. If we're honest, we only have to look to our own lives, don't we? We see the brokenness of our own lives. We see the mistakes we've made. We see the pain that we've lived in and the pain that we've often caused And we long for the world to be set right. We long to live in harmony and in peace with one another. And yet we feel this disconnect as we look at our own lives and the world around us. And you know what? The world's answers to this brokenness are as superficial as they are cliché. We hear these kind of things all the time, don't we? Can't we all just get along as if that's going to solve the problem? Or we slap a cheesy bumper sticker on the back of our car with all the religious symbols to spell the word coexist as if that's actually going to make it happen. Or we simply sing the refrain, all we need is love. Thank you, John Lennon, for that insightful piece of music. See, the problem with the world's assessment is that they have overestimated humanity, excuse me, and they have underestimated the brokenness of the world. They see so much more potential in mankind, and they don't understand the gravity of the problem in the world around us. Every time there's another tragedy, we've seen this again and again, even this year in recent weeks, celebrities, right, they rally together, the Hollywood elites and the the music stars of the world, and everybody sings Michael Jackson and declares that we are going to be the generation that fixes the world's problems, and yet here we are, another generation later, and nothing is better. You could argue that things are simply getting worse. But I want to affirm this morning the longings for the world, from the world, excuse me, for peace in the world. But I I also wanna question this morning the sentiment that it's possible for us to provide the solution to the brokenness of the world. You see, wishing for world peace will not actually bring it about. And one of the things I love about the, the Word of God, this book right here that we treasure so dearly, is that it affirms that we were made for so much more. But more importantly, maybe for this morning's purposes, it is brutally honest about the state of the world and the condition of the universe that we now currently live in. There are no airbrushed versions of peace in the Bible. The Bible paints a picture of an even greater vision, though, of the universe being restored into harmony, into peaceful existence, and yet it gives, at the same time, a more honest portrayal of the brokenness of the world today. And while it presents with shocking clarity the great problem that we face, it presents with stunning beauty God's great provision for fixing the universe Paul is in the middle of praising God. He has burst into this long, run-on sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. It is one run-on sentence where Paul is simply blessing God. He is praising God. He is ascribing worth and value and honor and glory to God. And as we go through this passage this morning, we see that Paul is breaking down for us more reasons why God is so worthy of our blessings and praise. In verse 7, we pick up this morning just three verses we're going to look at this morning. Paul says this, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is Paul's description of the brokenness of the world, the problem that we face both within us and within the world at large. And it is God's glorious provision of grace to the world, of the solution that we desperately need. And so this morning, I want us to look at this provision because this provision of God pulls us into the story. It includes us in God's masterful narrative of the entire cosmos. And we see that in that he first calls us to experience God's great grace. He calls us to experience his great grace. And I love the thought of God's great grace because we're reminded of how great the problem really is. You see, he begins in verse six with these two amazing words, words that we see repeated throughout these first 11 verses so very often. He says, in him, in Christ. Christ, in other words, is the center of everything. He is the glue to understand, or to all of creation, and he is the clue to understanding all of history. In him, as we saw last week, we have a new identity But we see that this identity is truly magnified when we understand the great gift of God's grace that makes this new identity even possible. He says that in him, notice verse seven, we have redemption. Now last week, I noted the Bible gives us lots of different metaphors to describe our salvation. And and last week in particular, we looked at the metaphor of adoption, being brought into God's family, and so much of what that contains for us. And, And really, we just scratched the surface last week, but this week, Paul kind of turns the diamond of salvation, and he lets us catch a glimpse of another beautiful side of salvation with this one word, which is really a metaphor, redemption. Redemption is a powerfully descriptive word that describes who we were. It means, listen, to be set free from bondage by a ransom price. It's not just a generic word for salvation like we may be inclined to believe. In fact, the background of this world could be understood in the context of Ephesus. In fact, it could be understand, understood in the context of the ancient world that Paul was writing to. You see, slavery was a common practice in Paul's day. In fact, you could go into the heart of the city center in Ephesus, and what you would find there is that there was a slave trade taking place. You could go into the the heart of the city, and you could purchase a slave for yourself, but here's one of the awesome things that we know from history as well, is that you could walk in, and you could actually pay for a slave for the simple purpose of setting them free. You could purchase their freedom. You could redeem them. a powerful picture of the liberation from imprisonment or bondage that characterized us as human beings pre-Christ, pre-salvation. But this word, I want you to, to understand, has far deeper roots than ancient Ephesus. And Paul, when he says this word, you have to believe as a as a faithful Jew, as a rabbi and a scholar, one who instructed the people of God in the ancient scriptures of old. He understood with great clarity that this word reached straight back into ancient Israel and ancient Egypt. You see, long before God's people were in Ephesus, they were in Egypt. And this really is the background of this word. The the Lord was forming, you see, a people for himself by his grace. And we see that traced through the beginning pages of the book of Genesis that God, he he calls Abraham and and then all of a sudden we find ourselves uh, towards the end of the book of Genesis that God's people are in Egypt. But we see that they have been in bondage for 400 years. They had become slaves where once they were prosperous, where once they were walking with God, they were now slaves. And they cry out in the midst of this slavery for God to set them free. God, come to our rescue. God, come and liberate us from this bondage. We can't take it any longer. 
They long for relief from this slavery, and God hears, and he sends Moses. Moses approaches Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. The God of heaven and earth says, let my people go, and Moses scratches his head for a moment and says, no. That's my paraphrase. He says, no, I'm not letting you go. Don't you understand? These are my people. I own them. This is my workforce. And so, God plans on freeing his people, and he uses Moses as a messenger to then enact 10 different plagues on the Egyptians. And the last plague of all is the most devastating. The angel of death comes and will bring judgment on the firstborn over every home in the land of Egypt, and God tells his people the Israelites, in the midst of their bondage, to take a pure and a spotless lamb and to sacrifice it and to get ready because God is going to liberate his people. So they take this lamb and every, every faithful Jewish person would take that lamb and, and they would spill the blood of the lamb and take it and paint it around their doorposts. And do you know the story? But how the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt and slayed the firstborn of every home who did not have the blood of the lamb painted across the doorposts. And the angel of death brought judgment but passed over the homes of those where the blood was spread across those doorposts. And this is where the Jewish people get their ancient tradition of Passover. See, God's people did that, and they were spared, and they were set free from the just judgment of God. And this, by the way, is the fundamental identity-shaping story of God's people in the Old Testament. The deliverance, the exodus from Egypt, the way that God spared them his great wrath, this defined who they were. This showed them that they were a people who were purchased for God, by God, to God. But I want you to see this morning that though they were rescued and ransomed and set free in the physical sense, there was a spiritual dynamic as well. And not only that, this Exodus story points to the greater Exodus story where we are set free from God's judgment. You see, what Paul explains here in letter form, Jesus explained to his disciples over a meal. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, do you remember the time, you know, we celebrate communion and, and we break the bread, we pass the bread and the juice, and we, we reflect upon some very meaningful realities of our faith, but do, I think so often we forget that when Jesus instituted the supper, he did so at the Passover meal. It was a time that they had set aside according to their faith and their tradition and the word of God to reflect upon God's great grace in their deliverance, how God had ransomed them and how God had redeemed them. The meal that they celebrated year after year was a continual reminder that was to shape their very lives. And that's what they were contemplating and celebrating that night with Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 26, let me just read for you what Jesus says to his disciples that night. He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of its fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. They would remember in that moment that they were the people who were ransomed out of slavery and into the promised land, but you need to see what Jesus does. Jesus shows them how that symbol is ultimately fulfilled in him. It pointed to a greater redeeming work that only Jesus could accomplish. You remember what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10? He says, I came to serve and not to be served, to give my life as a ransom for many. Paul goes on here in verse six, seven, excuse me. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. We'll get there in a second. Just notice this, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That is Paul, what Paul is saying redemption ultimately is for us. It is the full forgiveness of all of our sins, every trespass. By the way, I think sin is a concept that we fail to understand so often. 
Sin is not just breaking the rules. That, breaking the rules, is merely a symptom of a deeper problem, which is a heart that is far from God. It's not just a misfire here or there, it's a condition of the heart that actually infects all that we do. It's a rejection of God's love that leads to a life that reflects God's absence. The nature of sin forces us to ask this question, how are you with God? Where do you stand with God? You see, sin leaves us guilty and separates us from God, but in Christ we can be forgiven. That's what redemption teaches us. That God actually on the cross absorbs the penalty that we deserve to restore the relationship. Paying the ransom price is very clearly seen right here. Paul says, through his blood. It was the very blood of Jesus that was paid for our freedom. The Apostle Paul says that believers have been bought with a price in 1 Corinthians 6.20. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. Through his blood is an expression that is pregnant with meaning. It signifies that Christ's violent death on the cross as a sacrifice is the very means by which our deliverance has been won. In fact, he'd write in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 25. It'll be on the screen behind me. He says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The picture that Paul paints and the reason for his great praise and blessing to God is that our redemption, our freedom, our liberation, our exodus and our deliverance was obtained at the highest cost known to man. It was valued above everything in the entire universe. It was valued at the supreme price of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, why, why does this matter so much to me? especially if I'm a Christian, or, or even if I'm not a follower, what does this mean for me? Well, listen, here's what it means for you and me. The world says that sin is freeing, doesn't it? That the world says, live your life, enjoy your sin, don't let anybody tell you what to do, just pursue what makes you happy, what pleases you most. But the Bible says that sin is slavery. The world says that sin is the place where you can find happiness and joy. The Bible says that it is the place where you will find emptiness and destruction. The world says that, that sin is the place you go to find life, and the Bible says it is a place you go to find death. In fact, Paul would say that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And many of you in this room this morning, you need the redeeming power of Jesus to deliver you from the prison that you are currently living in. You desperately need the freeing power of Jesus to deliver you from the power of addiction. You need to be delivered by Jesus from the shackles of sinful desire. You need to be delivered by your slavery uh, to deception, by your bondage of your past. And by the blood of Christ, you are set free and you can live in light of that. You no longer have to be defined, listen, by past sins that you committed or past sins that were done to you. You no longer right now have to be defined by the sins that you presently are living in. Do you realize that? The shame and the guilt, the fear and the failure, the hurt and the pain, none of that has to define you anymore. You can have freedom and liberation in Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome news? This is how we find our identity in Christ. We look to his great grace. There's something else that we need to remember, again, especially if you're a follower of Christ today. I, I love the, the Exodus account. That story is just chocked full of rich, really deep pictures of the struggles of the human heart. And one of the things that I, I want to remind you of is, do you remember when, when the people of God were delivered by God so powerfully, so miraculously? Listen, a parallel of our own spiritual salvation. That Pharaoh went after them. 
You remember that? Remember Pharaoh all of a sudden changed his mind? He realized what he was losing, and so he went after the people that he saw God mightily set free. And listen, to me, that is just a, a stunning reminder that so often sin is tracking us down. Right? Satan, who has been defeated by Jesus Christ, does not want to let us go, even though we have been liberated by the power of God. How often do we feel sin pulling us back into our, own, our old life? How often do we feel those temptations that we thought we had got a handle of creeping back in? How often do we look at our lives and say, really, I'm here again? How did I get back here? I thought there was no more room for that in my life. The other picture I love from the Exodus story is that there were many, after seeing God's faithful deliverance and powerful deliverance, who wanted to go back to their former slavery. Remember that? They start looking in the wilderness at what they didn't have instead of what they did have from the hand of God. And they started complaining about things like leeks and onions. If that's not a ridiculous picture of the weak and frail nature of the human heart, I don't know what is. Let's go back there. It was better for us back there. Listen, we we laugh at that and we mock that. And yet that is so often spiritually how we live our lives, isn't it? We want to go back to our sin. It was better for me back here. It just seemed easier. It was less stressful and less pressure. I felt more joy in the moment. This following Jesus thing is really hard. But we need to recognize that we have been set free by the blood of Christ. And we must move forward There is, listen, in this idea of liberation and redemption, a freedom. And in the Christian worldview, listen, we always need to think of it in two kind of two sides of the same coin. There is always a freedom from, but there is also a freedom to. And again, there's a great principle here. This will be on the screen as well behind me. It's this, that true freedom isn't being able to do what you want, but what what you were made for. True freedom isn't being able to do what you want. That's how the world lives. It's actually being freed so that you can do what you were made for. Paul would write in Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. In fact, if you have your Bibles there, just flip over one page. And look at the very first verse of Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes these words. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see how easy it is? We have to be reminded. Flip over to verse 13 in Galatians 5. He says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see? You see, there's a freedom from being in bondage to the the, the flesh that controlled us before we knew Christ. But there's a freedom to do what God has called us to do and to be who God has made us to be, to love him and to love others. Peter chimes in on this in 1 Peter 2.16 and he says this, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Do you see that again? The freedom from, but the freedom to that God intends for us to experience. What's so fascinating is that as Paul writes this letter, he's most likely writing from a prison in Rome. This is his first imprisonment. He's more on house arrest than he is sitting in a prison cell, but he is likely at this point chained as well to a Roman guard, and it's here sitting in this prison where he is declaring the joy of being set free in Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's a kind of freedom that steel shackles can't bind. It's a freedom from sin and the judgment it deserves. This is God's great grace. For some of you this morning, you might feel the weight of your sin. And you might even believe this morning that there's no way God's grace could reach you that you've somehow gone beyond the grace of God. But the gospel of God's great redemption reminds us this morning that God's grace goes further than our sin, amen? Our great offense is not greater than his great gift of forgiveness. It is all, by the way, notice this, you say, why has he done this? 
He says this, it's all according to the riches of his grace. It's all according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Grace, as we saw last week, this picture of unmerited favor, unearned favor from God. He he lavishes this grace upon us. He gives us this great gift of forgiveness only according to the riches of his grace. That's a, a sweet reminder that there is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. The source is all grace. It is unearned. It is not worked for. It is the undeserved gift of God which he lavished upon us. I just want you to think about that word for a minute this morning. He lavished it upon you. God, your father, he poured out the bucket of his grace. Here's the only problem with that analogy is there's no bottom to the bucket. It's always pouring over us. I love this picture of God's lavish grace. It reminds me that there is right now in God, through Christ Jesus, no shortage of grace for lost sinners. This is not just a truth to believe, but this is a story for us to live by. That's what Paul is wanting to communicate. Don't you see how grace needs to be the theme of your life? It is the dominating theme. It is the thing that you reflect back on in Christ and it drives you forward in the same way that the Exodus account was supposed to drive the people of God to love him, to adore him, and to live for him in the very same way. Listen, the greater grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is to constantly be reminding you and refreshing you and empowering you to move forward, to live for him, no longer in shame or guilt, but in freedom and in power. Every story has a problem to be fixed. That's what drives a a plot line in a movie or, or a book, isn't it? There's a problem and there is always this heightening anticipation of the solution. In the biblical story, the great problem is sin and the great solution is always Jesus. So secondly, we see this morning that not only are we called to experience God's great grace, but his provision reminds us this morning that we are called to anticipate God's great goal. Paul says that all of this is according to the riches of his grace in verse eight, which he lavished upon us. Notice this, he's gonna kind of walk through how this grace has now been poured upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. You see, the story of history is still unfolding before our very eyes, and yet as we look at the Bible, one of the the awesome realities of of being a follower of Christ is this, we know how it all ends. You ever start reading a book and, and it's just so good? It just pulls you right in. You're like, I can't wait to know how this ends. Can you imagine that the final chapters of the book were left off and you simply had to speculate as to what it was all going to look like? You had to kind of concoct this story in your own mind and make it fit the narrative that you wanted it to fit. God doesn't do that to us. In his great grace, which he has lavished upon us, he actually provides for us an all wisdom and insight. The mystery of his will for the future. And it concerns his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. This reminds me that history, as John Stott has said, history is neither meaningless nor purposeless. It is moving towards a glorious goal. And I think we need to pause every once in a while and just step back and, and remember that we are part of a greater story. So often we're, we're so busy focusing on our personal story, aren't we? Right? Maybe, it's even, maybe it's even your personal story of redemption, of what God has done in your life, and we forget that there is a much bigger story that God has been writing. And God makes that very clear throughout the pages of Scripture. You see, God has lavished His grace upon us not only in redemption, but He wants us to understand that this redemption has, yes, at the center us, but it includes the entire universe. I just, just stop for a minute and just think about that. We so often, when you hear the word salvation or redemption or deliverance, where does your mind immediately go to? 
It goes to yourself, right? It goes to individual people. And let me just make this very clear. When the Bible speaks of those things, it is speaking in no way less than that. And that is the supreme sense in which God speaks of redemption. God is redeeming for himself people who are lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. The cross of Jesus Christ, as we just saw in redemption, is specifically to redeem lost sinners. But if we stop there, we miss the much greater and grander plan that God is unfolding in this entire universe. Redemption and deliverance and liberation speaks to a cosmic need and a cosmic reality. There is a mystery. Paul, Paul highlights that, that there, there is a mystery, God, in all of his wisdom and insight that he has given us by his grace. You say, what is that wisdom and insight? He has been making known to us the mystery of his will. Things that were previously, this is what mystery means, things that were previously hidden have now been revealed. Things that were once concealed from eyes are now revealed to hearts. You see, God has been making promises for ages. If you pick up your Bible and you begin reading in the book of Genesis, you don't get very far before you see God making his first promises in, in Genesis 3.15. They call it actually the, the first gospel. In Genesis 3.15, after God has cursed mankind, he has cursed Satan, he has cursed the world, he, he looks to Adam and Eve and he says, listen, Eve, listen, through you, one is going to be born of your seed and he will crush the head of the serpent, though the serpent will bite his heel, bruise his heel. First promise, and you know the Bible is actually the story of God then continuing to unveil in increasingly more degrees with more revelation as the Bible goes along. You can almost look at it as a, as a you know, kind of funneling outwards, opening up these promises, one promise after another after another, and they begin to unpack each other. And yet, every time you get to another promise, there's a sense of like, well, I still don't get it. I still don't get how God is going to make all of this right. I, I still don't quite see how God is going to fix the great cosmic brokenness of this universe we live in. How? This was the question. You need to understand this. In the Old Testament, as, as faithful Jews read the Old Testament, this was the question that they were constantly asking. Who is going to be the one that is going to crush the head of the serpent? And for them, listen, we read that, and we're like, yeah, he's going to put an end to Satan. In the ancient mind, that meant who is going to fix everything? Who's going to set it all right? How would God fulfill his purposes with all of this chaos that surrounds us. You ever, you ever wonder that as you're looking around and you see the, the hurt, the pain, maybe in your own life, but maybe broadly in the world around us? How is God going to fix all of this? How could God uphold his justice in judging sin and make a way for sinners to return to him? How can God keep his promises to his people when they constantly abandon him? How can God bring about flourishing in the world when there is constant ruin and destruction? And I want you to look very carefully with me at verse 9. Because he says how he's going to do it, making known to us, he says, the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Look at this, which he set forth in Christ. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. Christ is the answer. Listen, Christ is the answer to every problem in the universe. Every problem is resolved in Jesus. You know what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.20? He said, all the pro promises of God find their yes in Jesus. You know that? Everything God has promised to do finds its culmination and finds its source of power and transformation and change in and through Jesus. He is the glue that right now holds all things together. Everything. And he will one day make everything right. Verse 9 says again, according to the, his purpose, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. There is that fullness of time statement points to the future. 
to a future day when everything will be set right again. And I love, he uses the word unite. Paul is so consumed in this first chapter with reminding us of who we are. Our identity is found in being united to Jesus Christ. It's found in what he has done for us in all that he is. It's such a beautiful and a rich word. It's translated in a variety of different ways to try and capture the beauty of its meaning and the, the, the breadth of its meaning. Some translations say it like this. It is this, to sum up all things in Christ. Another translation says it like this, to bring all things together. Another one says, to bring unity to all things under Christ. Just to help you understand this a little bit more, Paul actually uses the same word in Romans chapter 13, 19, when he he explains that that all of the law are summed up, all of the obedience to the law is summed up in these two commands, love God and love others. It's some, that's the only other time it's used in the New Testament. Can you, just, can you just get a sense of what that looks like? All of the over 600 laws that God had given to the Jewish people are summed up, they're brought together under this framework of loving God and loving others. Don't you see they're brought underneath this authority, this submission to this one broader concept? And that is exactly the picture that Jesus, or excuse me, Paul is ex- expecting us to see here in Jesus in the fullness of time, God is going to bring everything, everything under the rulership and the authority of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, on the screen behind me, verses 2 and 3 says this, that in these last days, He is God, speaking of God, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And through, listen to this, and through whom also he created the world. And he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he, listen to this right now, right now, Jesus Christ, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, the rulership of Jesus Christ over all creation has already begun. It's already, but not yet in its fullness. And it begins right now with lost sinners being mercifully and graciously saved into the family of God, transferred from the kingdom of darkness, delivered over into the kingdom of his beloved son. But as it stands right now, not everything is in subjection to Jesus Christ. Satan still, though he's a defeated and vanquished foe, shakes his fist at God. He is still tearing down lost sinners and dragging them to hell. This world is still broken in immeasurable ways. Paul is telling us that in Christ, all of this This whole universe, it is all fixed in him. It holds together right now in him, but it will be united, healed, and restored in him. You know, we often think that God only cares about our souls and our spirituality. But this verse tells us that God's purposes are as wide as the cosmos. We tend to think that God cares about our souls. This is the kind of framework we often use. God cares about our souls. He is indifferent towards our bodies and he is repulsed by the world. But the biblical view of redemption teaches us that God plans to bring all things under the kingship of Jesus Christ. The Bible is not a story of God giving up on his creation and settling for our souls. No, he is renewing his creation and God's plan is for the broken universe that groans, as Paul says in Romans chapter eight, for liberation, for freedom, to be set free from sin's curse. Because that's what sin's curse has infected all of creation, every part of it. And just to make it clear how wide and how deep God's purpose is in fixing the universe, verse 10 says this, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, notice this, things in heaven and things on earth. That's not just a throwaway line, okay? 
When you read a statement like it's like, wow, he just means everything. It is so much more important than that. You see, when we zoom out and we look at the storyline of the entire Bible, we recognize the significance of this phrase. This phrase shows up in at least two places in the scriptures, and and it does show up in more, but at the very least two places, the very first two chapters of the Bible and the very last two chapters of the Bible. In the beginning, God created, help me out, the heavens and the earth. You see, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, there is a sense in which we are to see that, and this is now how, how heaven and earth are often understood, as dwelling places. You see, heaven, we speak of it often, don't we, as a dwelling place of God? And earth is the dwelling place of man. And there is a sense in which that is absolutely true, with some exceptions. At the end of Scripture, in Revelation 21 and 22, there is a picture of a new heaven and a new earth. God is not just renewing all things, but in the end, what we see is that He is actually bringing them together. In the same way that He has united us to Himself, there is a time coming where He will unite all things to Himself. In the same way that our union with Christ makes us right and fixes us, so too the universe will one day merge and be made right only in and through Christ Jesus. The ultimate vision of the Bible is the heavens coming down and merging with the earth, uniting together. And let me try just if I can to help you understand this a little bit better. This idea of these two dwelling places should be clear in your mind. But you see, God's desire and plan for creation is that we might dwell with Him. This is why we were created in the first place. If you read through Genesis 1 and 2, we see that there was a time when God was dwelling with man, right? There's Adam and Eve walking along in the garden, and guess who's walking along with them? God. God walks amongst them in the garden. You see, God dwelt with his people. That was the picture. Listen, it's the paradigm through which we are to understand our very purpose in creation. This is why God made you to know him, to live with him, to be in his presence. That is the greatest thing of all. And yet what we know is that that relationship was utterly fractured and destroyed because of sin. Heaven and earth were united. God walked walked amongst his people. When Adam and Eve sinned, they rejected in that moment God's kingship, his rightful authority. They refused to be under his headship. And instead of embracing his love and living in perfect fellowship, they were left guilty and banished from the presence of God. Kicked out of Eden. The dwelling place of God and man separating a rupture created between heaven and earth. And the rest of the Bible is the story of God bringing heaven and earth back together. That is one of the central themes in all of God's word. God dwelling with his people once again, untainted by sin. And this unfolds so powerfully through the pages of scripture. And if you can't see this, you will not grasp the magnitude of God's promised redemption You see, he shows up periodically throughout the scriptures and he makes promises that he will set all things right. Genesis chapter three, Abraham, or excuse me, then Noah, then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. He shows us that his longing to dwell with his people continues to exist. And so he calls out of people, out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, and he says to them, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you. That's Edenic language, by the way, pointing all the way back, echoes of Eden. And so he gives them, remember as they wandered in the wilderness, a tabernacle While they were wandering towards the promised land, he gives them this tent that travels with them everywhere they go. And it is there that God says he will dwell with his people. In this man-made structure, God will show up and his presence will be with them in a uniquely supernatural way. His glory will fill that place. 
And so they went to the tabernacle so that they could experience and be in the presence of God. And they eventually go towards the temple structure, a permanent building when they enter into the promised land. God allows them to build a permanent home, so to speak, for him. But it's not just a permanent building where he dwells in a uniquely special way. It is actually a place where sacrifices are made and sins are atoned for. God longs to dwell with his people, but to do so, they need to be purified from their sins. They need their sins taken away. They need to be washed white as snow. They need a perfect righteousness and righteous standing before a just and holy God. And so those animals are sacrificed over and over again in that temple structure to remind them of the devastating separation that sin has caused, but the divine grace that is afforded to them. The temple was viewed as a meeting place between heaven and earth, a place where they connect and where God comes to dwell on earth. And within the temple, there were different manifestations of God's presence. And the closer you got to the the center, to the holy of holies, a, a square cube, a room in the middle where the presence of God dwelt in the strongest way, where only a high priest could enter in once a year. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes along and he says in the book of John, the gospel of John, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now here's what you may not know. That word dwelt among us is literally translated as tabernacled. You could say it like this, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is in the New Testament the dwelling place of God. He is the place where heaven and earth meet and merge temporarily. And then he says eventually in the Gospels that he is the temple. Remember that? Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He is the place where sins are atoned for, the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where God dwelt. You see, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you went to the temple. In the New Testament, if you want to be in the presence of God, you go to Jesus. From there, the New Testament even expands on this. You see, it says that the church of Jesus Christ, like individually, Paul says that you, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of God lives within us. And then Peter says that that we are a holy temple made up of living stones. Do you get the picture? This right now is a place where God dwells. Some of you, we don't understand the significance of being in church. This is so, if, if you get this, I promise you, you will come to church differently. This is not superficial. This is not trite. This is supernatural. God promises to meet with his people. His presence is here in a unique way when his people gather together. You think about that when we walk in this place? We are a temple of the living God. His presence is not only within us, it is all within us corporately. This is the place where Jesus Christ is king, amen? That is why his presence dwells here. But ultimately, everything is coming together under the kingship of Jesus. You see, this is still a means to an end. Everything has to come under the kingship and authority of Jesus Christ. Everything, everything in the entire universe. And John writes in the book of Revelation... And he says these words, just listen to this, in Revelation 21, verses one through five. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned from her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, listen to this church, listen, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So while Paul sits and writes on house arrest, likely chained to a Roman guard, though his wrist was chained and his body was confined, his heart and mind inhabited eternity. He looked back, as we saw last week, before the foundation of the world. And he looks here forward to the fullness of time. And in light of those two eternities, he had grasped hold of what we have now, the redemption and forgiveness of our sins and what we ought to be now in verse four. He said, holy and blameless before him. How blurred, listen, our vision so often is. How small our minds, how narrow our horizons, how fleeting our obedience and how shallow our worship We are so easily preoccupied with our own petty goals instead of being preoccupied with his great goals. He is making all things new. And he is making them new in Christ. He has begun to fix us and he will one day bring that to completion. But beyond us, one day he will soon be fixing this entire universe. And if we can grasp Paul's perspective, then we can share his pursuits and we can certainly, certainly share in his praise. For as it has been said, doctrine leads to doxology as well as to duty. Life would become worship and we would bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly in Christ. Father, you have certainly blessed us so richly God, beyond our wildest imaginations and dreams. God, even as we sit and contemplate the magnitude of your redeeming purposes, Father, we confess to you that we feel oh so small. And God, you seem oh so great. And God, where we look at our lives and we feel like our sins are so massive, we look at your grace and we see that it is so much greater. So God, we pray that our hearts would be knit to the Apostle Paul's here, Lord, that all of these truths, these things that he knew, that he loved, that he embraced, would stimulate and stir our hearts, Lord, to the place where his heart was, a greater adoration and praise of the one who is worthy and deserving. We pray, Father, now that you would allow our hearts, Lord, to be moved to the place where our lips don't simply utter the words of the song we're about to sing, but, Father, our our lips confess and praise and speak the things that are genuinely stirring within our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would receive this praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, you have given us everything in him and it is to him and through him and by him and for him that we give you praise now. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.